The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. in New York City, and here is your top five at five. Moving on up, sort of. Jay Powell and the Fed shifting the timeline for rate hikes, but they're still talking 2023. Former Fed President Dennis Lockhart is here on whether that is the right move. Everyone trying to figure out what it really means. Bond yields stay low and stock futures are in the red. President Biden sitting down with Vladimir Putin. Will the cyber attacks on America's companies really stop? Some positive signs for the president's domestic agenda as a group of GOP senators get on board with a bipartisan bill on infrastructure. And another key political event that could have a big impact on the global oil markets, but it's not happening here elections in Iran will tell you what to expect because we are Worldwide Exchange. Today is Thursday, June 17th. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us here on this very busy Thursday. Let's get right to it. I'm going to check on your money. Post-Fed day, stock futures, they are actually slightly lower. This after stocks fell a bit on the Fed news, the Dow closing down about 265 points. We are seeing Dow futures off 138 right now. The Nasdaq down 91. Still, it's been a pretty decent month. The Nasdaq, even with yesterday's declines, still up about 2% in the month of June. Well, Jay Powell revealing the central bank now expects to raise rates but not until late 2023. Yes, 2020. Remember, that's not next year. That's in a year and a half. And that is actually sooner than they had earlier projected. Now, Powell also giving no indication on when the Fed will begin to scale back its aggressive government bond buying program. That is the so-called taper you hear so much about. Remember, the Fed has already begun to taper its corporate bond buying program. So there is a taper underway but that is a relatively small part of its portfolio. It's the government bonds that really matter to the market. Well, speaking of bonds, after a little bit of a spike in yields yesterday, yields are back down again. In fact, the benchmark 10-year yield higher than it was a couple of days ago, but still under 1.6%. So really, it hasn't moved in about four months. Let's get a quick check on your overseas stock markets following the Fed meeting. You had a mixed picture in Asia Japan's Nikkei taking the biggest hit, if you will, down just under 1%. And the European markets are open, and they are down, but very, very fractionally in their early trade as well. All right, as always, more in the markets and your money in moments, because that is not all that is happening this morning. There is also some new optimism around the possibility of a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Here with that and other key headlines this morning, Bertha Coombs. Good morning, Bertha. 
Good morning, Brian. Yeah, support for that bipartisan Senate infrastructure package is growing, with 11 Republican senators now getting on board. Senators including Richard Byrd, Lindsey Graham, Mike Rounds, Todd Young, and Tom Tillis, along with Jerry Moran, joining their colleagues who helped craft that $1.2 trillion plan. The development comes after the White House told House Democrats this week to get ready to go it alone on infrastructure if bipartisan talks failed through or fell through rather via an obscure budget process. Meantime, Chinese regulators have reportedly begun an antitrust probe into Didi just as the company was gearing up for what could be the largest IPO in the U.S. this year. According to Reuters, officials are looking at whether the company used any competitive practices that squeezed out smaller rivals unfairly. The report adds that regulators are also looking at whether the pricing mechanism used by Didi's core ride-hailing business is transparent enough. And Microsoft has announced that CEO Satya Nadella has been tapped as the chair of the company's board. The decision coming after a unanimous vote by the tech giant's board, Nadella will replace independent director John Thompson. Under Nadella's watch, shares of Microsoft have risen 600% as the company increased its focus on cloud computing and expanded through acquisitions like LinkedIn and Nuance. Brian, it's been quite a performance. Big promotion there. Normally we see companies going the other way, splitting the role. Microsoft now bringing them together. Yeah. But Nadella, as you said, has done a spectacular job, at least from a stock perspective. Bertha, we'll see in a few minutes. Thank you. All right, now back to the markets and your money and more post-Fed. Chairman Jay Powell saying markets should not yet ready themselves for a rate hike, downplaying a bit the central bank's projections on that possibility. Listen. Rate increases are really not at all the focus of the committee. The focus of the committee is the current state of the economy, but in terms of our tools, it's about asset purchases. That's what we're thinking about. But the Federal Reserve also raised their economic outlook, boosting GDP projections to a stunning 7% for the full year. Kind of all begs the question, what do we do about all this? Joining us now is SoFi, head of investment strategy, Liz Young. I'm going to start off with a really complicated question, Liz. Are you ready? Because it's early. What do we do do about all this? Well, first you have to look at what actually happened. And Jay Powell's message was that the markets shouldn't react to the idea of higher rates, but they already did. And the futures are already reacting to that today as well. And I've never met a market that liked the idea of higher rates or rate moves that would be sooner than expected. So what the market obviously is going to do is look out into the future and say rates might move before we thought. But here's the real message. When we expected rates not to move up until the end of 2023 or maybe even 2024, I think that was a little naive. The economy is not in an emergency situation anymore. And as we move through 2021, yes, rates likely stay at zero, but we get into 2022 and maybe we start creating more organic growth. We've got inflation that finally lifted off the ground. We've got a job market that, if we meet the Fed's projections, is pretty healthy. So I think rates do eventually have to go up and before originally projected. This is not bad news. Well, the bond market could do the work for the Fed, as they have, the so-called bond vigilantes, Liz. And we know there was a big jump in yields from November to March. That some thought was sort of a pre-taper move by the bond market. We've been stuck pretty much since mid-March on yields. Do 
You think the bond market is going to wait around for another, I don't know, 18 months, 24 months? I hope it doesn't, because what we want as investors is for markets to make sense with the economic data. And we already saw a pretty big move in the 10-year yield as a reflection of the idea that rates might go up and that the economy is doing better. I think the rally in the 10-year yield over the last month or so has been something that doesn't really add up. So I'd like to see the 10-year drift upwards, but the key word there is drift. Spikes in yields are something that really confuse markets. They tend to send equity markets into a little bit of a tizzy. So you want to see rates slowly drift upward. And that would be positive for rate-sensitive sectors like financials, who are going to make more money as the curve steepens. There's also probably a lot of investors out there that were expecting a curve to steepen. So over the next 6 to 12 months, I do think that rates continue to go up. I just hope they do it in a controlled fashion. Do you think there's a chance that the, you know, we've been kind of conditioned, Liz, over the last decade or so that low rates good, higher rates bad, but that's not always the case. Do you think there's a chance that the Fed may have to reverse course? I mean, just because they project something doesn't mean that's what they're going to do. I I, I project I'll have more hair next year than this year, but that's probably not going to be what happens. Is there a chance they will, they could do more damage to their goal of maximizing employment or controlling prices than good from this ultra low rate for longer policy. Well, I think that's the the line that Jerome Powell and the rest of the committee has to really dance around because there is a risk in being too slow to act. There's also a risk in doing it too quickly. And what they really don't want to do is cause another taper tantrum or cause an overreaction in the market because there was a move that was too soon. I think, and I continue to say this, I think this Fed is going to err on the side of being too late, rather being too late than too early. And we heard that same message yesterday. Don't expect a rate increase anytime soon. The tapering message continues to be consistent. I think we were expecting to get a little bit more information about that taper yesterday, but we'll still likely Mm. get it in fall. I think the Fed will continue to be really patient here. And we also have to keep in mind, they keep talking about this average target. If we assume, and this is just me assuming just for simplification, that it's a two-year average, core PCE is still only running at 1.59, 1.6% on a trailing two-year average. So there's nothing in the data that's screaming at the Fed to act anytime soon. Because if you look at a, at a trailing two-year average like they do, of course the numbers are going to be skewed. That, that's the problem is the data from last year is so out of whack. We started normal, absolute lockdown in many states, the economy tanked, then the economy came back. Can we can we look backward and get any guidance at all? That's my problem, Liz. I don't understand how we, we should look at 2019 numbers, right? Don't even look at 2020. Almost look at 2019 and 2021, not just from the economy, but from earnings. Or is that just 5 a.m., you know, crazy talk? I absolutely agree with that as far as an earnings perspective. From an inflation perspective, I mean, inflation was still low in 2019 as well. So these numbers, earnings, inflation, a lot of the economic numbers that we see are going to look toppy. They're going to look hot. Everything is going to look like a peak when we compare it to a trough. So, yes, it's true that all of the data is going to look skewed as we especially this kind of late spring, early summer time frame. But what we have to really also keep in mind is something that came out of the meeting yesterday 
if the expectation is that inflation runs a little hotter than 2% and the Fed is okay with it, some of those votes on the dot plot actually looked like they would move rates when inflation got just slightly above 2%. So I think the buffer that we had in mind changed Mm. as well, and that's what the market is trying to digest. Can we just leave it, Liz, on what really matters? And let's be honest, what really matters is about 15 hours from now that your Milwaukee Bucks cannot lose (laughs) the Brooklyn Nets and take it to a Game 7. Can we just say that your Bucks have got to get it done tonight, please? I hope they get it done. Fear the deer. Yeah, there you go. All right, Milwaukee's own Liz Young, cops, frozen custard. You know what that is on me at some point whenever, I don't know, we do that kind of stuff again. Liz, thank you. Yeah. All right. A big game tonight. All right, go Milwaukee. When we come back, more on the Fed and if its ultra-low-rate policy could actually hurt the job market. Former Atlanta Fed President Dennis Lockhart is here. Plus, Your morning's big money movers and shares of one biopharm company plummeting over some concerning vaccine news. Just who could that mystery chart be? And something is happening tomorrow that might have a big impact on the global oil markets. Lee McCroft is here to talk Iran. Very busy hour still ahead right here on Worldwide Exchange. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. We're going to go back to low inflation post all of this. But it's very clear that clients are worried. And you know, the bond market agrees with that clearly at the moment. Clients are very worried about whether the, this inflation is going to be transitory. The Fed seems confident. You know, economists always seem confident they discover afterwards. We actually think that the base effects and the supply issues are more or less incorporated now and in where we see the inflation going. So therefore, overall, we don't expect infl- inflation to stay. Uh, and we think it's more a short-term effect. We also see that in some of the rates, uh, we expect rates to stay low. And, and you see that, again, with our clients, the investment opportunities they're looking for are still, you know, still searching for yield because the base rates are low. The CEOs of Man Group and UBS speaking with CNBC yesterday, all part of our Evolve Global Summit on two key issues of concern for the markets and the Fed, inflation, of course, and rates. You can catch still all the great Evolve Summit content on demand at the cnbcevents.com slash evolve for details. All right. Time now for some of your big money movers. Three key stock stories of the morning, plus a bonus. First up, Lennar. The home builder posting better than expected earnings. A tight supply of homes for sale means higher prices. But it's not all good news. 
Lennar is also dealing with higher input costs, we talked about lumber, as well as trouble finding workers to actually build the homes. Stock number two, The Honest Company, reporting quarterly results for the first time since going public. Shares trading lower right now, down about 3%, despite some better-than-expected numbers. Been a rough ride, honestly. Stock now down about 25% since the May 5th IPO. Stock number three, CureVac. Shares plunging after preliminary data showing the company's COVID vaccine is only 47% effective. Look at that. Your disaster du jour. Stock down 39%. And we'll give you a bonus group of stocks today to watch. Why not? Feeling generous. I'm off tomorrow. It's the Chinese chip makers. Shares are surging today on a Bloomberg report that Xi Jinping has tapped Vice President Liu He to spearhead China's chip-making push. About $1 trillion of government funding has been set aside for that initiative. All right, on deck, a new warning from General Motors on how inflation and the semiconductor shortage could hit the bottom line. Today's big number, 75%. That's the share of people in the U.S. and Canada who said they had high daily stress, according to a new Gallup poll. That's well above the 43% world average. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. Ahem. <clears throat> The UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, welcome back. Let us talk oil, because there is a lot happening in the oil world. Not only has the price soared this year and increased demand and OPEC supply control... But there's also a lot of intrigue around Iran. Excuse me. Elections are this weekend, and what happens there could determine a lot toward the pathway toward normalizing relations with the United States and maybe getting more barrels of oil on that market. I get all choked up talking about it. Let's welcome in our friend Lee McCroft from RBC Capital Markets to join us to talk about all of this. Never take a sip of coffee right before you come back from commercial break. There's your lesson. Uh, Halima, welcome. The Iranian elections are tomorrow. It's looking increasingly like the hardliners had the edge. They may expand their power. What do you expect in Iran and what do you expect the impact and the U.S. response ultimately may be? I mean, it looks like it's set up for a hardline victory. I mean, the Guardian Council in Iran essentially threw out a bunch of moderate candidates clearing the path that looks like for the conservative judiciary head, Ibrahim Raisi. I mean, I think the question is going to be, you know, do you have, you know, the U.S. and Iran able to sort of come to terms quickly post-election and do a very narrow nuclear deal that gets potentially a million barrels plus of Iranian exports back onto the market? I mean, the wild card is, do you get any sort of street protests like in 2009 that put pressure on the Biden administration if there is some type of crackdown? But there are reportedly high levels of voter apathy in Iran. Turnout is expected to be sub 50 percent. And so, again, it looks like we're going to have a hardline government, potentially a narrow nuclear deal and no real improvement in U.S.-Iranian relations. Does that damage the opportunity for Iran ultimately to come back to the world oil stage? I mean, they're pretty much putting all their oil in ships 
off their coast and, and not legally allowed to sell it in certain parts of the world. At least the U.S. has something to say about that. Does that does that push back their return to the global markets, if you will? I mean, the Supreme Leader looks like he has blessed these negotiations and he's the ultimate arbiter. I mean, questions are going to be, you know, will Iran agree to make these nuclear restrictions you know, permanent or extend the shelf life of them? What are they going to do about the ballistic missile program? But it does look like the Supreme Leader wants sanctions relief, but on his terms. It's not like 2015 when the president of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, talked about a potential opening to the West, the reintegration of Iran and the global economic system. It looks like it's going to potentially be oil barrels only. No major reset in the sort of relationship between Iran and the West, potentially even getting tougher with a hardline regime. And we'll know, I guess, in in about a day and a half or so what happens in those Iranian elections. Let's talk about the other side, and that is supply, because uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman of, of the energy minister of Saudi Arabia has done, I would say, a masterful job in sort of bringing OPEC together. He's pushed up the meeting timelines, although I still wish they were in person, not virtual. He has kind of got the cheaters, the Iraqs of the world on board, and we've seen the price of oil firm up. You spoke with him on a panel a couple of days ago. He's been very critical of some of the IEA projections about where exactly global oil demand may go in the years ahead. Any clue as to what he's thinking right now from your conversation on Wednesday? Well, again, it was interesting. I mean, he keynoted and some of those remarks were basically leaked to the press. But, you know, what we know about his royal highness is he remains very cautious about this market. He thinks that his caution has proven to be correct. I think if they're looking to add barrels onto the market, they will do so in a very sort of you know, gradual way. But then you have other producers within OPEC plus. I mean, the Russian corporates, the Russian officials are very eager to put more barrels on this market. They basically say, look, we're in a deficit situation. The market needs potentially a million extra barrels coming out of OPEC plus. You have some of these officials saying we should be adding 500,000 additional barrels every month going forward. So I do Mm. think Iran becomes important because if Iran doesn't come back this summer, if it's sort of a later year issue, how does this factor into negotiations? Because they're going to have to try to calculate, you know, how many barrels they do bring back. Abdelaziz wants to be cautious. But again, you have other OPEC members who say the market needs these barrels. Have you driven lately, Halima? Because if you've seen the roads, you think we might actually be able to absorb those one million exactly. extra barrels a day. The, now, we think you can the absorb the those traffic. barrels. Yeah, I, if, if, if you look at I-95, I certainly think that we might be able to. Uh, Halima Croft, great stuff. As always, have a terrific day, Halima. We appreciate it. Those Iranian elections are tomorrow. Thank you. By the way, Goldman Sachs yesterday came out and said they would not be surprised if oil hit $100 a barrel. Wow. All right, still ahead. The SEC once again punting on a decision on a highly anticipated Bitcoin ETF. And a reminder, if you are getting back on the road and maybe can't watch but you want to listen, follow our podcast on all the major podcasting platforms. We are back with Dow Futures Down 115 right after this. Low rates for years? The Fed still saying no rate hikes even next year. Could that set off an inflationary spiral? Former Atlanta Fed President Dennis Lockhart is here. Investors trying to figure out what it all means for their money. But as the economy grows, 
will higher prices start to take their toll? Futures right now, they're down 126 in the Dow. And get ready, one day early, because we have got your exclusive insider buying segment today with one little talk about stock getting a huge insider buy. It is Thursday, June 17th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, welcome or welcome back. It is just about 5.30 Eastern time on the nose. Good Thursday morning. Here's how your money and investments are shaping up on the heels of that Fed policy decision. And they're not shaping up too well. Futures are in the red. They're down about 125 on the Dow. NASDAQ futures off about 78. Stocks did fall yesterday as well. The Dow closing down 265. But remember, hold up. We have seen a pretty good month for stocks so far. Even with yesterday's down move, not including today, obviously. I can't see into the future. NASDAQ markets up 2% in the month of June. So we are still higher for many of the major averages, just slightly less higher than we were before yesterday. Well, let's get a check on the bond market because yields there did spike a little bit higher after that Fed news, but then they kind of moved back down. We are still below 1.6%. Bond yields right now at that level, 1.57. Think about that. We have been stuck in a range in bond yields almost now going back to March after that big spike up from, call it, ah, October, November to March as well. So the bond market just kind of sitting still, maybe either not believing the Fed or maybe it already moved a couple of months ago. We'll talk about that in just a minute. We'll get more on all of it in just a moment. But first, let's get a check on some of this morning's other key headlines. Bertha Coombs is back now with those. Bertha. Hey, Brian. A Microsoft shareholder is calling on the company to conduct a report on co-founder Bill Gates and sexual harassment in the workplace. Arjuna Capital says it has introduced a resolution on the matter, citing allegations Gates sought to have inappropriate relationships with employers and other claims of sexual harassment. The group has previously pressed large companies on issues including general and racial pay gaps. Meanwhile, General Motors CFO says that the ongoing semiconductor shortage and rising inflation will likely increase its expenses during the second half of the year by up to $3 billion. But the company says much, if not all, of those costs could be offset by GM's performance during the first half of the year. GM increasing its earnings forecast for the first half of the year ahead of yesterday's uh, appearance at a conference to between $8.5 billion and $9.5 billion in adjusted pre-tax earnings. That's up from the previous forecast of about $5.5 billion. And the SEC has once again delayed its decision on whether to approve a Bitcoin ETF. In a regulatory filing, officials say they will seek more public comment on the matter. This marks the second time the SEC has delayed a decision on ETF provider VanEck's proposed Bitcoin product since April. The crypto falling on that decision, but rebounding this morning. Just shy of uh, 40K there, Brian. I'm not really sure how it would work. You know, sometimes with these ETFs, the buying that they do can influence the price itself. And with crypto already so volatile, that may be one of the issues. I did a panel about a year and a half ago, Virginia Tech, my alma mater, with Hester Peirce, who is one of the SEC commissioners who's been in favor of adjusting more to crypto and Bitcoin ETFs. Some people say some of the problem is also, Bertha, that Bitcoin never stops trading. There's no close Mm -hmm. and open 
And so they, they might, it might be hard to just do a constant pricing of a non-crypto type product. Who knows? I, I'm sure at some point we will get there. Worth a thank you. Isn't that kind of weird? Like, it's always hard to know, is Bitcoin up or down, but off what? Because it never stops trading. Anyway, investors continue to digest Fed Chairman Jay Powell's latest comments after the two-day policy meeting. Among the key takeaways, the central bank now signaling an earlier timeline for raising rates, but it's not early at all. It's just earlier. 13 out of the 18 officials now expecting a rate hike by 2023, not 2024. That is up from just seven back in March. But not everybody in the Fed is looking that far out. Other members see a rate hike coming as early as next year. The Fed also sharply raising its inflation forecast, now seeing it running closer to 3.4%, about a full percent more than its previous target. But they do not see that pace of prices lasting for long. And they kept that transitory language, sort of the economic word of the year, if you will. They also talk taper with no clear indication when their massive government bond holdings will start to be sold off. At the next meeting, we will begin meeting by meeting to, to assess that progress and talk about what we, what we think we're seeing and, and just do all of the things that you do to sort of clarify your thinking around the process of deciding whether and how to adjust the pace and composition of asset purchases. Joining us now is former Atlanta Fed President Dennis Lockhart. Dennis, it's good to have you back on again. Great to chat. If you were still sitting there in that room, would you have voted on on no rate hikes to 2023? Well, yes, I think I would have. Um, There are a couple things on their minds. Obviously, the employment situation, which Jay Powell talked about quite a bit. Um, And at the same time, I took away the emphasis on inflation expectations and changing inflation expectations takes some time to ensure that they're really anchored. So uh, the 2023 for liftoff seems to me realistic. Uh, The other interesting question is tapering of the bond purchases. And he did signal that they've begun, begun to discuss that. Yeah, and there's a lot to unpack there, Dennis. And let's start with the second part first and talk about the taper because the mark, by the way, we've already started a taper just on the corporate bond side, much smaller. The government bonds is what they really uh, do care about. But those were emergency actions. Of the, 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 they're really unrelated correct. to the, and they, to the monetary policy. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah but they, they, are, they did hold them and now they're sort of unwinding them. There's a lot of acronyms like in 2008. I'm just trying to make like the SNCF and trying to make sure that, that our audience understands all the different stuff because we already had to learn enough about 10 years ago, Dennis. Um, when we talk about a taper, is one of the reasons we're looking at the 2023 because to taper a balance sheet of that size will take a long time. I mean, could it take a year or more? And so we can't raise rates because that process is just going to be a long, slow-moving train. Well, uh, first, I think they will taper before liftoff. I think that that sequence is uh, is logical and so the first action to remove accommodation will be the tapering. Uh, how they will actually conduct that remains to be seen. Uh, judging from history, from the last time we went through this, uh, uh, in all likelihood, they will slow purchases. They won't just go cold, cold turkey and, and stop purchases. 
And yes, it could take some time. It could take uh, arguably, uh, you know, a matter of a few years to get back to something that looks like the balance sheet pre-COVID. Yeah, and, and that's what's interesting, too. And let me ask you this, job market, Dennis. I know we've been conditioned that low rates are, are good, higher rates bad. But if you're a business trying to operate and low rates are sparking inflation and everyone, you know, you can't get workers. And if you can, you have to pay them so much that there's no way you could raise prices enough to actually make any money. So why be in business? Is there any chance that the low rate policy could actually damage the Fed's mandate of maximizing employment? Or do you think that would that would have no impact whatsoever? You know, I view this pretty simplistically, and I think you stated it, uh, you stated the logic ex- uh, correctly, and that is low rates on balance are better for uh, stimulating the economy to get people back to work than higher rates. And, and this, to me, it's about that simple. Yeah, because we want to maximize employment. We want to do that by stimulating economic growth. We had an artificial drop due to the pandemic and lockdowns, then a, then a rapid fire return. I guess the question is, if you're in that room, what do you think Jay Powell is thinking about when he looks at a job market that's still, by the way, coming back strong, but also has, what, seven or eight million open jobs in America right now? Well, I think uh, they have very much front of mind, the whole, the whole committee, uh, the conditions pre-COVID. And if you think about that, we had, part, we had participation that was in the 63 to 64 range. Today, it's in the high 61 range. So there's a, a gap in terms of participation. And then secondly, 3.5% unemployment with that level of participation. Today, there, there's, as he said, there's a long way to go to return to that world. And uh, so I think that's what they're thinking. They're thinking we, we want to restore the very good conditions in the labor markets, the employment markets that we had pre-COVID. What do you think the next, look, next big change is going to be and where might it come from? Is it going to be the Jackson Hill Symposium in August, that beautiful setting in, in Wyoming always kind of yeah, yeah, tends yeah. to be where we get some new Fed news? Or do you think it will be later than that when another sort of uh, a big shift, Fed style, of course, may happen? Well, the big shift, of course, will be around tapering, and it will be uh, some concrete information about tapering, uh, so the markets will will uh, understand how it's going to be carried out and what the mix of assets would be. It could be mortgage backs uh, that to start, or it could be balance between mortgage backs and and treasuries. Since they began the discussion at the meeting that ended yesterday. I think the Jackson Hole Conference would be an occasion for Jay Powell to kind of lay out a plan and to really uh, flesh out the thinking for the public. Uh, it, that might be a little early, but uh, the timeline that I kind of believe ex- w- w- will take place is either Jackson Hole or September. We will get a lot more new information as to how it will be done. And then it will be a few months before they begin to implement the tapering itself. 
Dennis Lockhart, former Atlanta Fed president. Dennis, it was a real pleasure to have you on Worldwide Exchange, a much-needed long conversation, well, long TV style, of course, about a very important topic. Uh, Dennis, a real pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, Brian. Are you very welcome? All right, great insight there from Dennis Lockhart. All right, on deck. What exactly to make of yesterday's Biden-Putin summit? Will it stop any Russia-sanctioned attacks on American companies? We'll talk about it with Eamon Javers, live in Geneva, next. All right, welcome back. President Biden is back in Washington this morning. By the way, a beautiful shot live at the White House as the sun rises. All follows the conclusion of his first overseas trip, including that highly anticipated sit-down with Vladimir Putin. Eamon Javers in Geneva, the site of the summit, with more on the key takeaways. Eamon. Good morning, Brian. One of the key takeaways here is that this is not a bromance between Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden. We saw a summit here between U.S. and Russian leaders back in 1985, Reagan, Gorbachev. And during that summit, they had meals together. Their wives met. They strolled the grounds of the villa where they stayed. We saw none of that yesterday with Biden and Putin. Instead, it was all business. And Joe Biden suggested that this is all about finding those common areas of interest, not building a personal relationship. Here's what he said. We should be able to cooperate where it's in our mutual interest and where we have differences. I want a President Putin to understand why I say what I say and why I do what I do. For his part, Vladimir Putin denied that Russia was the biggest source of cyber insecurity in the world. In fact, he said the largest perpetrator of cyber attacks on planet Earth is, in fact, the United States not Russia. He denied a lot of the allegations against Russia that are made on the international scene and, in fact, made uh, allegations back against the United States case by case by case on human rights uh, and a number of other issues, including cybersecurity. But he said that the negotiations had been positive. Talks were quite constructive. As for cybersecurity, we reached an agreement, chiefly, that we will start negotiations on that. I think that's extremely important. So many of the accomplishments here, Brian, were of the agree-to-continue-talking variety. They're going to continue talking about cybersecurity. They're going to continue talking about nuclear weapons with the idea of having some kind of agreement some point in the future. No specific date for that. But they did agree to exchange ambassadors again, and that is viewed as one positive takeaway from the summit here, Brian. So I want to get this straight, Eamon, very quickly, because Russia-sanctioned or based hackers shut down the most important domestic pipeline in the United States and Putin's response is that actually, no, you, you, the United States, you're the biggest cyber threat in the world. Okay. Uh, Also, there was a moment during President Biden's presser where a reporter asked a question and some tempers flared. Yeah, it was an interesting moment and sort of revealing, I think. Caitlin Collins of CNN asked the president how he could be sure that uh, Vladimir Putin was going to change his ways in the wake of this. Uh, The president said, hey, wait a second. I never said I'm sure. I'm not confident of anything, he said. Uh, But we're going to wait and see. He said the proof is in the pudding here uh, in terms of Vladimir Putin's behavior. But he snapped back very aggressively at Caitlin and and was uh, sort of mean to her. Uh, And when he got to the airport on the way out, he actually apologized 
and said he shouldn't have been uh, so, so tough on her. Uh, that was an interesting moment, I think, because what it showed is uh, Biden is very sensitive about this idea that he might have been snowed under by Vladimir Putin here, that he might be somehow naive that Putin is going to change his ways. He doesn't want the expectation here to be that Russia is never going to do anything malign again. He wants the expectation to be that the United States is now entering into a series of negotiations. So he snapped back hard on that comment. I think it tells you what's, what he's really thinking about here. Well, what what you know, what you know, Eamon, is our cybersecurity guy is that we'll know if if the cyber attacks stop, it worked. If they don't stop, it may not have worked because we know that all information has to go through central government Russia routers so, or, and servers. So we'll, we'll see exactly if that proof is in the so-called pudding. Eamon, great stuff there. Our last couple of days as well. Go get some pudding or whatever they're having in Geneva, uh, Switzerland uh, weekend. Do, Brian. Actually, not yet. Eamon, thank you. <laughs> Not yet. All right. Food is it. Ciao. On deck, your weekly look at the biggest insider buys by the insiders who know and the companies you need to watch, including one little talked about name with a big time insider buy and just a gentle nudge. If you haven't already, follow our podcast. All right, welcome back. I'm off tomorrow, so we're going to do our exclusive weekly insider buying segment right now because we know you don't want to go a week without it, right? So according to insiderscore.com, here are the five companies with the most buying by company executives this week. They are the ones in the know, after all, and these stocks have been outperforming the broader market since we've been doing this for just about a year now. And let's count you down as always five to one. The fifth most buying, Rev Group. Multiple insider buying at this sort of ambulance and school bus maker totaling 491000 Fourth most, C3AI, ticker AI. A board member, also the former co-CEO of SAP, by the way, buying 645000 worth. Third most insider buying this week at software firm Roper Technologies. Big in the oil field, by the way. A longtime board member with his biggest ever buy at 906000 bucks. Now we enter the more than a million dollar club. You ready? The second most insider buy is a huge Roaring Twenties play, Open Table, a director buying $1.98 million worth, by the way, after buying $2 million worth last month. So basically doubling down on the restaurant reservation company. And that big buy would normally be the biggest insider buy of the week, but not this week. This week, it is a $3.2 million buy at Corsept Therapeutics, ticker CORT, C-O-R-T, a board member making a big buy on recent weakness in the stock. That is a name to watch. So there you go. The top five, Rev Group, C3AI, Roper, Open Table, and Corsept Therapeutics. Remind we do this exclusively on WEX, well, usually on Fridays, but today on Thursday, your insider buys of the week. Let's talk more about the macro markets now. I'm bringing Phil Palumbo, founder, CEO, and CIO of Palumbo Wealth Management. Phil, it's good to have you back on. Listen, we talk about insider buying The one thing I don't know if we talk about enough are buybacks, different than insider buying, but buybacks are on pace to top $1 trillion this year. Do you think the reduction, whatever else we face, will the reduction in available stock to buy with a huge surge in cash available, does that mean the market's path of least resistance is still likely higher? 
It amazes me when you think about that statistic. I mean, I, when I look at markets today in terms of valuation, and I've been saying this for the past three to four months, is you know we are overvalued. But the problem is, is that's its problem if you want to call it. Where they're you know the best house on, on the worst block in terms of where else you're going to go with your capital. And on the quality side, on the value side of the equation, there is some va- more value in the markets relative to the high beta name. So I think executives are seeing that, and that's why you're seeing some of that insider buying that you just talked about. Yeah, and also big-time buybacks. But on the other side of it, we're dealing a lot post-Fed, Phil, with obviously inflation. We've kind of half-joked that this is the year of, of digging stuff out of the ground. Commodities are up, oil, gold. So anything that you have to put a bulldozer in or a drill bit in to pull out is probably up in price. Are you still a believer and a buyer of major commodities? Yes, I am. So my... My thought process is this, right? So in terms of this current environment, there is no playbook. I think everybody understands that. And you really need to use logic. As we think about it, every financial show that you watch, everybody's talking about is it transitory, non-transitory. For us, it's more about, okay, what part of this is transitory, which we believe the supply chain disruption is the base effect and the reopen effect are all going to be transitory, which can stabilize somewhere fourth quarter, first quarter, second quarter of next year. The non-transitory part, we believe, are the wage increases that we're seeing, and the price increases that we're seeing, that which we believe will be, we believe businesses will not voluntarily reduce those prices. So we believe that'll be non-transitory. But the bigger problem we think is the long-term issues as it relates to inflation, which is the quantity of money that's been put into this system over the past 14 months. The the uh, the Fed that wants full full employment, and that's going to be his focus. The massive deficits that we've seen which has to be financed, which will debase the dollar, which will increase the cost of imports, which will be passed on to the consumer. And, and just overall, when you put that together, our thesis is that inflation is here to stay. We don't believe inflation will be like the 70s. So what do we do, Phil? We just buy, do we just buy gold? Just buy gold and let it ride? Yeah, so when you think about, well, so if we're right about that, and inflation is going to be higher going forward than it has been historically, then the asset classes that historically have done well during inflationary times is commodities. Uh, gold has as well, but you got to be careful with gold a little bit because there's a negative correlation to rates rising and gold going down. But ultimately, during rising inflationary environments, gold has performed as well. Are there any stocks out there that you like? Normally, we do like opportunity picks on Friday, but I'm off tomorrow. We can still do it tomorrow, by the way, but I'm not going to let you go. Phil, without maybe getting a stock pick or two from you. You don't like all of them, but I know you like some of them. So when you think about where we are today in the cycle, we believe that we could have probably the rate of change peaked in earnings and rate of change peaked in terms of economic growth. In that type of situation, you normally have quality stocks that will continue to outperform as you think about things going forward. And and, and Triple M is is a great business. It's it's boring, but it's a great business, great dividend, large, uh, great balance sheet. And in a situation where we believe the dollar declines, if you have a business that produces most of their re- 50% of your revenue or more overseas, you know, that could increase profits when the dollar declines. So we like triple M. There you go. 3M, one of the companies you like for this inflation environment, like the commodities trade, the gold trade as well. Phil Palumbo, a pleasure to have you on Worldwide Exchange. Thank you. Have a great day and a good weekend. Thank you, Brian. All right. Well, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Like I said, I'm off for the next couple of trading days, but we got you fully covered. Tune in tomorrow morning, 5 a.m. Eastern time, as always. But right now, 
Squawk and the gang are to pick up the coverage next. Bitcoin is up. Dow futures are down. And inflation talk is on the way. See you soon. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.